Friends, come on, grab a seat. Let's get started this morning. Let's begin today by um, praying Psalm 97 together responsively. It's on page 820 of your hymnal. Page 820. And Jeremy is passing out a, a handout, so keep an eye for that. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Let's try that again. Let's do it again. Psalm 97 on page 820. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and... The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, indeed, um, we rejoice in you this morning. Uh, We praise your holy name, and we ask that even as this psalm has set before us a vision of uh, your your character, um, who you are, um, your glory, uh, we pray that you would grant us um, wisdom to comprehend these things, even as we Um, discuss um, your character, O God, um, this morning. Uh, We pray, Father, for your mercy and grace in that. We ask also that you, uh, by your Holy Spirit, would enliven our worship this morning as you uh, draw near to us um, in a short time uh, to renew your covenant with us again this Lord's Day. We pray that you would uh, do these things um, by uh, the work of your Son, Father, um, that you would be near us uh, through Jesus and by your Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Um, Does everybody have a handout? Anybody need one? Sarah needs one, and Paul looks like. You want to grab some for them, Jeremy? Thank you, sir. All right, so we are um, in Chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, Last week we looked at um, the first paragraph um, of that uh, chapter, and I'm just going to... begin by reading that so that we recall it and have it before us. Um, 
the first chapter of, or the first paragraph of chapter two is about um, who God is. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that's a sentence right there, friends. Um, that is a sentence. It's a great sentence. Um, and it really, um, I think, displays for us the character um, of God in a, in a profound way, in a helpful way. Um, as we move through this chapter, I wanted to just kind of make this comment as I was reflecting um, this week, um, preparing. It's interesting, um, we talked last week about the first chapter, which is an, a long extended um, chapter on the scriptures, um, is certainly polemical in some ways. It's, it's a chapter that is um, distinguishing uh, Reformation Christianity, Protestant um, Christianity from um, alternatives that were available uh, within Christendom at the time and are, still are today. Um, in contrast, um, this chapter, chapter two, uh, really from beginning to end is not polemical in the same way. This is a very uh, small c Catholic chapter in the sense that, it, um, the, that what the divines say here about God is not original in some way to them. Um, it's not, you know, they're not arguing for a certain kind of polemical perspective um, in the same way um, that they were in the first chapter and as they will in other chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, these are, you know, words that, that come out of the Christian tradition uh, all the way back to the beginning um, and would have been, you know, drawn from the, the teaching of Aquinas, and the teaching of Augustine, um, other church fathers. Um, and I think that's important to say that, that here, and it's good that this is a, a, a chapter where the, the church in general would be able to speak of God in these ways. And, and that's, that's important to say. This isn't, this, this whole chapter as God is being defined and discussed um, is not um, something that is somehow particular to our uh, Reformed tradition or our, even our Protestant tradition, but is broader than that. Yes, ma'am. You keep using this word. What's that? Polemical. Yes, ma'am. So polemics is essentially the, the art of debate. Um, and so um, to say something is polemical means that you're, you have a, a particular perspective um, and you are seeking to persuade others of that perspective, essentially. Um, so what I mean by this is polemical in the sense that it's, it's polemical to the, the world outside the church, but uh, chapter two is, is not polemical in the same way that um, chapter one is on scripture because there would have been there, you know, a number of points in chapter one where there would have been significant disagreements between uh, what was being articulated in the, in, by the divines in the Westminster versus what the Roman Catholic Church taught at the time, that kind of thing. So that's what I mean by that. Does that make sense? And then, of course, 
The next chapter, which is of um, God's decrees, is polemical in the sense that there would have been folks who would have not understood God's sovereignty in the same way um, that the divines were arguing for. Um, but this chapter, I think it's fair to say, I mean, we might, might be a few, th I'm not saying that every branch of the church would, would express um, a, dot, you know, a statement about God in exactly these words, but what I'm saying here is that uh, the points that the divine's making here are broadly agreed upon by the church um, in a way that is more or less Catholic, more or less universal. Um, does that make sense, that distinction? Yeah. Um, let me um, jump into the next uh, chapter and then we'll see if there are questions and talk about, or not next chapter, next paragraph, paragraph two. Um, and then we can talk more about this. And again, this, this paragraph two is another statement that um, is broadly understood by the whole of the church of God um, throughout the world, throughout the ages, as a, as a these are things that, that we agree on um, in the church about who God is. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever he himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest, his knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature, whatever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Um, just as you're working through this document, this handout, those um, parentheses with the, uh, the, the letters in the middle of them are connected to proof texts. You can look at the bottom of each paragraph and see um, those were put in um, by the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith to support um, their, um, their arguments um, that they might locate them directly in Scripture. And, and a wonderful way to work through a, ch a chapter like this um, is to go paragraph by paragraph and look up each uh, scripture reference and really think about um, why they would have chosen that um, reference um, to support that doctrine. Um, Robert Lethem comments this, he says on this paragraph, he says, Westminster Confession of Faith 2.2 is a towering declaration of the supremacy of God over all his creation. And this is why we read and prayed Psalm 97 a moment ago. He has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He is all sufficient, the sole foundation of all being. He needs nothing outside himself, whereas we depend utterly on him. His sovereignty over all he has made will come to expression in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter three and onward on the decrees of God and their outworking in creation, providence, and grace. Um, and that, that is something that is worth saying. Um, I would argue, um, as someone who 
subscribes to the Westminster Standards, um, that uh, the more sort of controversial chapters that are coming around the bend in, in chapter three and, and some of those following, um, all derive from what is being argued here about the nature of God. Um, if we believe that God is over all his creation, if he is totally sovereign over all things, if he is um, not dependent on his creation in any way, if he is not, um, you know, his actions are not contingent on ours, um, then, then that leads, I think, inevitably, in my mind at least, um, to arguing that God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass, including um, the salvation of all mankind. Um, and that, that is, that's something worth pointing out here, that there is a sort of logical progression uh, in the minds of the, the divines, and um, as we read that document, it's, it's worth contemplating that. So just to work through this paragraph briefly, and then we'll take questions. Um, essentially, this first um, sentence here is, is about, as Lethem puts it, the self-sufficiency of God as well as the supremacy of God. Um, what they're arguing here is that God possesses everything in and of himself um, inherently. Um, he has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. He is alone and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. Um, so what, what they're saying there is that the Lord is in and of himself um, totally sufficient. Um, there, there was no need for God um, to, to create the world. Um, there, there was no lack in him. Um, there's no dependence that he has on his uh, creation um, in any fundamental way. Um, that he is in and of himself um, sufficient. Um, that, that even his glory, um, uh, properly speaking, we don't glorify God somehow on our own merits, but rather uh, we, um, when the Lord redeems us and, and renews us by his grace, uh, reflect God's glory back to himself. We become like mirrors of his glory. We're not uh, sort of glory factories in and of ourselves. Um, and so that's essentially what's being argued here. Um, he is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. So in contrast, um, we are not like God. Um, we are not sufficient unto ourselves. We are not um, uh, we do have needs. In particular, we need God. Um, we, he is the fountain of our existence, and not only our existence, but the existence of everything um, that exists in creation um, perpetually is dependent upon um, the life of God. Uh, and this is something that's, you know, it's very easy to forget this and not think about this, but um, it is absolutely true, um, as Hebrews 1 says, that our Lord Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so everything that is taking place um, in creation happens not by some sort of, you know, God didn't just sort of set everything spinning and then walk away. No, he perpetually upholds it all. And he does so through his son, who is Lord of all creation, uh, the one through whom all things were made. Um, the stars um, are in the heavens. Um, They're held there by our Lord Jesus, by his continuing, sustaining will. Um, everything that happens in creation is dependent upon um, God. Um, he has sovereign, most sovereign dominion over them, that is, all things, all creation, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever he pleaseth. Um, all things are not only dependent upon God for their existence, um, but they obey his will. 
Um, they do what he says. Um, there is no uh, talking back to God, right? There is no um, arguing with him um, when he wills something to take place. Um, he is um, sovereign and free um, to do uh, whatever he pleases to do. And his pleasure, what he decides to do, um, as the next sentence explains, is not dependent upon us. Um, in his sight, all things are open and manifest. And what they're saying here is that, that God sees everything. Um, he sees, um, as our Lord Jesus says, he knows the hairs on our head. Um, he knows um, the birds of the air. Um, he is conscious of it all. Or as Hebrews talks about, um, that, that everything is open before the gaze of God, um, that nothing is hidden from his sight. Even the secrets of our heart are known to him. His knowledge is infinite. Um, it, there is no limit to it. It's infallible. Um, it does not fail. It is independent upon the creature. It is not as though we can um, hide um, parts of ourselves um, from God or parts of his creation from him. Um, it, it is not dependent upon us, his knowledge of us. His knowledge of us is independent of us. Um, we can't close our eyes and pretend that God doesn't see us, right? Um, uh, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, because he knows all things, um, nothing to him um, is contingent. Uh, he, he's not waiting to see what we'll do to, to respond to it. Um, he knows um, all things. He is most holy in all his counsels and all his works and in all his commands. Um, here what the divines are emphasizing is, is certainly God's moral purity, but even more than that, they're emphasizing um, his separation from creation, that he is set apart, um, that he is different, that he is other um, than we are. He is most holy, um, not only in his um, being, but also in his counsels and his works and his commands. His ways, as Isaiah tells us, are higher uh, than our ways. And so, therefore, this last sentence follows, so therefore to him is due from angels and men, both um, angelic beings as well as men, and in case you f felt like something was left out, every other creature, um, every other thing that he has made, the animals, the seas, the hills, um, the stars, um, all his creation um, is uh, due to give him whatever, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. It is impossible for God um, to ask something of you that he doesn't um, have the right to ask of you. Um, that's, that's impossible. Um, he has the right to ask anything of us uh, because of who he is, because of his relationship um, to his creation and to us. All right, so there's just kind of a brief explanation of some of those points. Let's see what, what comments and questions there are. What thoughts? Yeah, Jeremy. Like, kind of like supports 
Sure. Yeah, and, and of course, that's a, basically a direct quotation from the scriptures, um, from Hebrews 11, right? Um, that um, in order to please God, we must believe that um, he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Um, and yeah, that is, you're right, that is an interesting, um, in, a, in a paragraph that is really emphasizing the transcendence of God, um, we, might, we might see that as a as a, an emphasis on his drawing near to us or in his desiring us to draw near to him, um, to, to seek after him, um, to peer into these mysteries, to, um, that he will reward us as we do that. I think that's right. What other comments or questions do you all have? Anything that needs clarification? You can go back to the first paragraph too, as Jeremy just did, or the second one we just read and talked about. Yes, ma'am. Trudy and then James. I'm, I'm amazed that God could exist. He just wants to be known by anyone. Mm -hmm. That's just powerful. It is powerful. He wants to be known. I agree. It is powerful. It's powerful because, um, yeah, the, the transcendence of God makes um, his grace and mercy even more um, precious to us. Um, when we really understand that the Lord is not, um, he doesn't need us. Um, he doesn't um, depend upon us. Um, the fact that he still um, takes initiative, um, not only to redeem us, but even to create us in the first place, um, that, that we even exist is an act of God's mercy and grace. Um, you know, there was grace long before the fall of humanity, right? That's something that's important for us to contemplate when we read the first chapters of Genesis, um, that the Lord was gracious from the very beginning. Um, uh, nothing that Adam and Eve were given had been earned by them. They didn't deserve any of it. Um, he gave them the entire creation. Um, he gave them life itself. He gave them existence. And that, that is something, I mean, if, if we can live in a way that reflects that reality, I mean, that's the, that's what will lead to gratitude, right? Um, as if we can really comprehend these things um, regularly in our hearts, that, that um, not only is God merciful in uh, forgiving our sins and, and, and sparing us from his eternal judgment, but God is uh, gracious and merciful to us in terms of just because we, we would not be otherwise. Um, every, every element of our understanding of, of reality is dependent upon his his constant grace and mercy it is it is remarkable to think about that and that's one of the reasons why we need the transcendence of god uh, we need to contemplate these things we need to um, not you know pull back from stuff like this did you have a comment or question james Yeah. 
I agree. Yeah, Jonathan Edwards answers that question. He likes to ask questions like that um, and think about them. And his answer to that question is that the reason for which God made the world is that um, he might have a, create a spouse for his son, um, which I think is a, a good answer. Um, that he, and this is something that's worth contemplating too, right? We're, we've been focusing on God's, the unity of God's being, um, but as we'll see in paragraph three, um, God from all eternity has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, it's within that context that, that even things like his own self-sufficiency really make sense, right? Because um, God and his triune um, uh, being and the three persons, one God, um, is a living community in and of himself um, from all eternity um, without beginning or end. And so, but it is also, like you said, uh, the Trinity points to um, the generative nature of God, um, that God is uh, so in some way fundamentally relational. Um, and so he might not have made the world, um, uh, we can say that, I think, philosophically. Um, it's not as though he had to or he needed to or it was inevitable, um, but, um, but it makes perfect sense that he did, right? It's, it's absolutely fitting that he made the world. And I think as Edwards, Edwards is right, um, that the reason for which God made the world is so that um, his son might be uh, given a spouse. Um, and I think that's a wonderful way to think about uh, the purpose of the creation, um, which, which implies that uh, we, um, as the spouse of the son, um, are to be brought into the nature and life of God in some way, um, that we're to be um, brought into this divine fellowship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, we would say that is the end of our salvation. That is the outcome um, of what God is up to. Um, he's not simply sparing us from hell, um, from uh, separation from him, but he's actually um, drawing us into himself uh, um, through our Lord Jesus, that uh, through our union with Christ, our lives really are, as Paul puts it, hidden uh, with Christ, with Jesus, um, with um, the one who is raised from the dead. Our lives are hidden with him in God. Um, and that this is the most profound thing, fundamental thing that is true about us, um, is that we, we belong um, to God in that way um, through the work of Christ. Any other thoughts about that question? Or any other questions? Yeah, Sarah. That's a great question. How would you answer that question, Paul? <laughs> or Lauren? Iniquity, transgression, and sin, are those synonymous? Um, essentially, I would say that they're synonymous. Um, they are all different terms used in the Old Testament, um, particularly. Um, I don't know that I feel confident enough to try to make distinctions between them. Um, well, a sin is missing the mark. A transgression is crossing a boundary. There you go. And iniquity is related to inequity. Um, so some sort of lack of justice. There, everybody hear that? That's great. <laughs> I think Paul nailed it. Um, sin is missing the mark. Transgression is crossing a boundary. Inequity is related to, would you say, inequity? Iniquity is related to inequity. 
so a lack of justice. Yeah, there you go. That's how I'd answer that question. <laughs> I love it. I have, a, I have a water muddy question. Yeah, great, okay, wonderful. I look forward to it. That is one of the problems, yes. Um, and so I know the Trinity is ahead, but um, anytime I read these two paragraphs, I think, is there anything here that a good Muslim would disagree with? Um, particularly in the first paragraph, we think a good Orthodox Jew or Orthodox Muslim, mm -hmm. I think, could agree with every line. I just want the Trinity to come earlier. I understand. We we talked about that last week, um, and um, but I yeah I understand what you're I understand the point you're making. Um, I, the, what I basically said last week is that in this decision to um, to to talk about the Trinity last in this chapter, um, the divines are essentially following a historical pattern and paradigm for doing theology that precedes them. Um, this is the way that Augustine work through uh, the personal, you know, who God is, is the way Aquinas, uh, it, was, it was certainly more of a patristic and even maybe especially medieval um, uh, way of describing God. And today we, you know, the, in some ways the tables have flipped as you think about um, Christian theology in the West, as you know, probably the East too. I'm less familiar with that though, um, in that it's much more common now to start with the Trinity. And that, and that's, I think that's a fair point. Um, I'm not. I think that's a, that's an interesting question in terms of um, would a Muslim or a Jew agree with um, the first chapter or the first paragraph, the second paragraph? Long suffering might not, might not be something that's very decided. Within Islamic world, yeah. I am not an expert. I will, that's, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, that is an Eastern critique of Western theology mm -hmm. that it's so emphasizes by beginning the unity of God that the Trinity becomes this embarrassing thing to sneak in later. Uh, now, a, a top-notch Orthodox theologian told me one time, that's a caricature of Western theology. Uh, but Sinclair Ferguson, no lesser person than Sinclair Ferguson, who's not Eastern, Yeah, I, I think I think it's a point worth making. It, it certainly could have been written that way. Um, I the pushback that I would give in terms of defending Westminster's um, Trinitarian convictions is the way in which the Trinity is worked out um, throughout the rest of the document, which I think is done very well, uh, both um, in the Confession itself and then particularly also the larger Catechism. Um, I think has a great deal to say about about the way in which God's Trinitarian relations exist and are fundamental for us um, for everything, for creation, for redemption, for um, salvation. Uh, yeah, James. We, we talked about the, um, the more polemical nature of the first chapter and then the more Catholic mm -hmm. that, that chapter with the ancient Jesus. I'm saying it's about 
distinguishing the Reformed um, tradition from the Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. the other Ascanians, mm-hmm. um, and then the things that the yeah the Church agrees upon. Oh, absolutely, and that, that's right. And, and it's important to remember, right, the divines did not understand themselves to be writing a Presbyterian confession of faith, right? They were writing the confession of faith for the church, for the nation of England, right? Um, they, you know, and Scotland as well. Um, so, you know, like, this, this was meant to be a, a, a document that, that spoke for a, a broad group of people, um, not, not a, a small minority, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Other religion was not was that was certainly not concern. that was certainly not one of their leading concerns. I would say, yeah, yeah, and I and I think and I think I mean we we can um, this question of the order of the the paragraphs here, the Trinity, and you know versus the unity of God. Um, I do think that this is this is part of why. I mean, we can just theology happens in a context, right, um, within a broader context of church history, and I, and I. I suspect that if the Westminster Confession were being written today, um, it would be written differently, and that might be one of the differences, and that's okay. Um, you know, we're we're nearly you know what 400 years um, forward in history at this point, and and there have been a great number of discussions about the Trinity since then. Um, Lauren, did did you have a comment? Like some on the tip of your tongue. Absolutely. Full of a uh, articulation, as mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So <coughs> you can't really take one section and pull it out of yeah. the context yeah. of the others. Or yeah, I agree. And we talked about some last week, too. Yeah. And I think I think that that's right. As you think about the chronological development of God's revelation of Himself in the Scriptures, um, certainly the emphasis on the Old Testament is on the the oneness of God. Um, is at the heart of, and we talked about this at length last week. Um, that yeah, that it that it is at the heart of Israel's understanding of who her God was was that He was one, and not only that He was one in the sense that He wasn't multiple gods or something, but that he was alone. Um, he alone was God, um, that he alone, um, and it was because of that um, holiness, um, that being set apart from all the rest of his creation, that they were called to live a particular kind of set apart holy life. So yes, absolutely, part of this, and we could talk about that, that the order of these things in some ways follows um, God's own revelation. Any other comments or questions about particular details in um, particularly paragraph two, anything? Okay, I want to I read a quote here from Rob Rayburn um, that begins in the bottom of your first page and continues onto the back. Um, Rob Rayburn is one of my pastoral heroes. I don't know him well at all. I've met him once. We've exchanged a few emails. Um, 
but um, he, his ministry has deeply impacted mine. Um, he is now retired, but served for 40 some years as pastor of Faith Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Washington. And um, he's just a, a wonderful thinker and writer, um, not only for his congregation, but for the broader church. So in his retirement, he's begun um, to participate in a blog I've discovered um, uh, recently, which I'm sure is a new thing for Dr. Rayburn, um, um, that some younger guys are running, but they're, they're featuring some of his articles. So this is taken from an article. It's called Renew Northwest. So I think it's guys that live in that part of the country, PCA pastors, who are uh, hoping to reform the church and renew it, which is great. So Rob wrote an, an essay on... Um, the transcendence of God and its loss in our current day and age. And I thought it was worth uh, quoting at length. Um, uh, he writes, and if you just Google Robert Rayburn transcendence, you can find the whole, the whole of the article. The counterpoise of eminence is transcendence. God is with us to be sure, but he is at the same time far above us and past our finding out. He inhabits eternity and dwells in unapproachable light. He has determined beforehand everything that comes to pass, tragedy and triumph alike. He is possessed of an implacable, immutable, and holy will. He is the judge of all the earth who keeps an exact record of every human life. Accordingly, he will on the great day conduct a thorough examination of each life in keeping with that record and dispense reward and punishment accordingly. The living God in all three of his persons is the creator of heaven and earth, the author and Lord of human history, the destroyer of his enemies, and the sovereign judge who will cast the wicked and impenitent into hell. That side, I mean that side, the transcendent side of God, that side of the biblical revelation of God, um, Dr. Rayburn says, is an eclipse in the American church today. One might almost say in total eclipse. Eminence is in, transcendence is out. Virtually every development in the liturgical life of American evangelical, evangelicalism, including, he says, that of the Reformed and Presbyterian type, and he writes as a PCA pastor, a PCA churchman um, who loves our denomination, um, virtually every development in the liturgical life of American evangelicalism, including that of the Reformed and Presbyterian type, expresses a triumphant eminence at the expense of the biblical and historically Christian emphasis on the majesty of Almighty God. Surely you are witnesses of this. He says, we must ask what all this will mean for the next generation of Christians that we have adopted the custom of such a culture, a broader culture that emphasizes God's nearness, is bad enough and dangerous enough, but what will become of our children if we do not by our actions communicate reverence for even the fear of the God who we also love? No one is likely to take the living God seriously if it doesn't appear that his own people take him seriously. We were made for eminence, for a family relationship with God who is present with us in our daily life, but we were also made for transcendence and need just as much that dimension of our faith and experience. We were made to feel awestruck before the glory of God. We were made to wonder at his, infi at his infinity. We were made to tremble before the majesty of his justice, his power that beggars the imagination 
the unfettered sovereignty of his rule and indeed his implacable wrath. His saving work is intended to make us people who tremble at his word and fall on our faces before him. It is our deepest privilege to be known and loved by the Almighty and to love and revere him in return. We were made to lift our eyes far above ourselves. The great danger of this is that without an effective counterpoise, without all that effectively bears witness to the transcendence of the living God, very soon much of Christian truth is going to seem simply incomprehensible to more and more people, Christians included. Indeed, all indications are that it, al that it already is. Without the fear of God, the reality of divine judgment, and the unconditional requirement that all nations submit to the Lord Christ, there can be no gospel. Um, I just put that before you because I think it's worth contemplating and thinking about. Um, I think that he is, um, I mean, Rob um, almost always expresses things strongly, so um, there may be ways in which he's overstating his case um, a bit. Um, but I think in general, I agree with what he's saying there, that, that it is absolutely true that um, modern people prefer a God who is not above them and beyond them, um, who will not judge them, um, certainly who won't send them to hell for um, rejecting him. And, and the church is tempted by this, I think at times, to emphasize those parts of God that are most um, appreciated um, by the culture around us. And there's so much that the scriptures say about God's mercy and love and nearness and grace and all of those things, and that is absolutely good. And we certainly emphasize those things here. But um, we ought to not be, we need to also be thoughtful of what Rob is saying here, that, um, that there is a majesty, a dread of God, um, a reverence, a fear um, that, that also needs to be part of the emphasis. Um, um, of our worship, of our doctrine, of our preaching, uh, of our Christian life. And, and I, I really appreciate um, these first two paragraphs of the standards, or this chapter of the standards here, because I think they emphasize rightly um, God's transcendence in a way that we need to contemplate and wrestle with. Um, yeah, James. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think it's on kind of like the niche of Christian contemporary music, the idea Christian folk music, um, indie Christian music, um, that there are lots of young Christians who um, are deconstructing their faith or having some kind of similar experience where they are feeling like everything is just too complicated to really figure out or know what to believe. And so then they're clinging to this emphasis on the mystery and the beyondness of God. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I don't know that it's necessarily <coughs> always a good thing in the way that they're doing it because then you get into this kind of theology optional Christianity um, where everything is kind of beyond us and there's mystery and there's wonder and that's, that's great. I do like that emphasis in many ways, but then they To, to seek, to 
Yeah, yeah, obviously that's that would not be the way I'd want us to move push back against um, these trends in our culture. I, that's probably true, I think what you're saying. But yeah, God, God and his transcendence is, I mean, yes, there's a mystery to it, but I think we can be confident of who God is in his transcendence, right? The scriptures describe him to us. Um, in many ways, those first two paragraphs are simply a summary of um, what the scriptures say about God's sovereignty and power. Um, and so, yeah, the, the response to that should be awe and fear and dread and um, in, a, in a right kind of way. Um, and I, I think that's different than what you're describing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyone else? Did you have a comment, Jeremy, or no? Anybody else? Any thoughts about that quote from Dr. Rayburn? Um, I'll just say, I mean, this is part of why we worship the way that we do and with the, um, um, you know, certainly the register of our worship is higher um, than um, in most of the churches that surround us in the community here um, and candidly within the majority of churches in our denomination. Um, and that's on purpose. Um, I think that Christian worship has always um, had a high register um, historically. And that's something that we, we think is important. Um, there should be a kind of formality um, to the worship of the church of God. Um, it should be a solemn thing, a joyful thing also, yes, absolutely, um, but also a solemn thing um, to come into God's presence. Um, he is um, a consuming fire, um, as the writer to the Hebrews says. Um, and, and, and we want to, you know, and so there are particular decisions in our worship in terms of um, the, the, the way that the pastors lead it even, right? I don't tell jokes during the service. Um, there are lots of churches where that wouldn't be true, right? Um, you know, it's just a different way of, of being and talking and even inviting us into the presence of God. Um, I, I want our worship to be led in a way um, that is um, reverent, um, in the deepest sense of that word. Um, I want the music that we sing to be uh, reverent, um, to be certainly joyful, um, but, but serious as well, um, because it's serious business uh, when we come into God's presence. Um, and I think, I think that's something just worth thinking about, right? What, what, is the, what is the flavor of the way in which we worship? What is it encouraging? And, and I think Dr. Rayburn is absolutely right in terms of the liturgical innovations in his lifetime, um, his, his ministry, the last 40 or 50 years, um, have almost all been in one direction, um, generally speaking. There are exceptions to that, of course, but, um, but certainly um, worship, in the United States at least, has become far less formal. Um, and I think that's a mistake. Um, I don't think it's any wonder that people feel like they don't need to go to worship um, if it is not a solemn and holy and reverent thing. Um, I, I think those things are connected to one another. Um, yeah, Scott. Yeah, I would note that approach has 
Yes. Yeah. Is what's prescribed for us. <laughs> and certainly all throughout the Psalms, you could look at that too and think about yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because he is holy. And that, yeah, that's a great quotation from Hebrews, um, worshiping God with reverence and all. And, uh, and how could it be otherwise? How could we come in the presence of God and it not be um, solemn? It not be um, uh, something that is overwhelming in some sense? Um, if, if he is the one true living God um, that is described in the scriptures and even in this first um, part of the Westminster Confession here. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Yeah. There are multiple examples of that in the scriptures, right? Um, um, the man who reaches out and, you know, saves the cart from falling off um, the wagon. Um, and is struck down dead. In some ways, that was more on David than on him. Um, David was supposed to be the one who um, obeyed the law, and the law wasn't being obeyed there. That's why you're only meant to, to carry the Ark of the Covenant in a particular way, right, With by Levitical priests who had, you know, rods through it. And does that make sense? <laughs> like the whole thing. But, you know, that's another example of, yeah, the, the holiness of God. Um, he is a consuming fire. Um, and yes, certainly the story with Ananias and Sapphira's emphasis on that as well. Um, there's a lot of um, emphasis today in our culture on, you know, people want to be safe, right? Um, it, it's almost as though it has become um, the most, the highest value, the highest good. And I think Lewis is right when he argues that um, the living God is not particularly safe. Um, you're loved, right? Um, the Lord is with you. If the Lord is with you, if he's on your side, then you're in good hands. Um, he's trustworthy. Um, but if you read the scriptures, um, safe is maybe not the way that we would describe the presence of God. Um, it's something more than that, something better than safe, I would argue. Um, it's something that changes us, um, that doesn't leave us as we are. I mean, that, that, the way that word is used in our culture, I think that's typically what people mean by that, right? I, I'm, I want to be safe in that I don't want you to cross any boundaries that I might put up and have, and the Lord doesn't function that way. Um, and we should not encourage people. We should, people should be, um, both comforted and discomforted by worship um, on the Lord's Day. Um, there should be a kind of soberness to it that should people should draw back, you know? Um, if, you're not, if you're not hearing preaching that's doing that to you, if you're not, the worship itself isn't causing you to um, be careful, then, then there's probably something missing. Yeah, Donovan, we'll close with this. It holds up. It does. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I'd, Lewis's, to, 
to pick, I mean, there's so many wonderful things about those novels, but certainly for me, I don't think there's a better um, within literature depiction of the person of God than what Lewis gets gets at with through allegory, through fantasy, um, with the person of Aslan and and the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, those books are, and I've you know read them probably as many much as anything I've ever read. Um, yeah, they're deeply philosophical and theological, what he's doing there. Um, and it's, those are books that are, are really faithful companions, particularly when we think about the nature of God and the nature of Christian discipleship and what those things look like. Yeah, I, I commend them to you. All right, let's uh, stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, your holiness. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you, um, Father, um, for the way that, um, that you call us into your presence, not only um, to assure us of your love for us, but um, to make us holy, um, to make us like yourself. We thank you that you've done this through your Son, um, who is not only our Savior, but also um, the judge of the living and the dead who comes on a white horse um, to destroy his enemies who will uh, reign um, publicly before all. And uh, the nations will wail, Father, at his coming. I pray that you will give us um, a sense of these things a sense of even the way in which every Lord's Day is um, a foreshadowing of the great day, the day of the Lord, uh, the day when our Lord Jesus will come. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit you would be merciful to us. You would help us to prepare our hearts uh, for the coming of our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>